Welcome to the Metal Tech Podcast, this region's leading business podcast, shining a light on technology, entrepreneurship, and the future of business in Kentucky and beyond. Our goal is to advance the ecosystem by bringing attention to the founders, changemakers, innovators, and those supporting them. Middle Tech's content can be found on your favorite podcast streaming app, social channels, and YouTube. We encourage you to follow and participate in the conversation. Let's discuss and build the future. Welcome back to the Miltech Podcast. You've got Evan Knowles and Logan Jones here. We just got done doing a very unique episode. So one of the hottest topics in tech right now is cybersecurity. So there's been some major hacks. One of the biggest hacks in history had just gone down with uh, solar winds not too long ago. Uh, and it's a really relevant topic because, you know, the world is becoming much more digital every single day. And we're starting to see the effects of that in every facet of life but especially when it comes to security. You know, oftentimes when you think of something uh, as being safe, you think of it uh, in a physical sense of being safe. Uh, but in the future, you know, security is now about uh, cybersecurity. Uh, oftentimes when you talk about people, when you talk to people about, you know, the future of warfare and things of that nature, it's, it's digital. It's going to be done through computers and the internet. So cybersecurity is something that's really important. We actually haven't talked about it on this podcast yet. But again, it's a very important topic that I think everybody should have some understanding about because it does affect us in our everyday lives, whether you realize it or not. So our guest is Wes Spencer. Shout out to our friend Corey Cope for the uh, for the intro there. Uh, so they are both from Murray, Kentucky. So Wes is from Murray. Uh, he was a professor at Murray State University. And um, he just finished and he is still actually working at a startup that uh, got acquired for 80 million dollars uh, is the uh, quoted price within some in some articles you'll you'll laugh when he uh, gets on the podcast and actually uh, is not allowed to talk specifics but the articles that come out have come out uh, state that at 80 million dollars um, and it's a cybersecurity company called perch they're located down in Tampa Florida uh, and it's a pretty fast exit you know it's just like three and a half years after they founded the company so that tells you right there how hot cybersecurity is and how in demand a lot of these startups are uh, he knows this stuff. He is able to explain it. One of the ways that um, I can tell somebody is really knowledgeable in a subject is how well they can explain that subject to somebody that doesn't know anything about it. And you know, he does a great job of this. He's very, very well spoken, uh, so you can tell he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, uh, and just to reemphasize, eighty million, eighty million dollar exit. That's pretty, uh, pretty extraordinary. That's a lot of money. Um, and this is just a really, a really down to earth interview. Like Evan said, he's great at explaining all the intricacies of cybersecurity. And this is a topic that I don't think I, uh, really gave too much thought about. I think it's something that we all like to blissfully ignore and be ignorant to, because I don't think a lot of us know too much about it and know how to actually go about protecting ourselves in terms of, uh, having safe cybersecurity practices. Uh, so we got to talk to Wes about, you know, what cybersecurity actually is, how he defines it. Uh, we talk about what a hack actually looks like. That was that was a question that kind of popped into my head during the interview of what does it look like physically when somebody is trying to hack into your organization or your software? Uh, he had a great explanation of, of what that actually looks like. Uh, we talk about how companies work to prevent and monitor for them. We talk about what happens after a company is actually hacked because as he describes in this episode, uh, it's almost inevitable sometimes that a company is going to be hacked. It's just making sure that once that happens, uh, they're ready to uh, have a response to it and hopefully snuff it before anything bad actually happens. Um, we talk about him building that the startup perch that we were referring to, the one that's now exited or had the, the acquisition. Um, and then we also talk about what it's like building a company in Tampa, Florida. So that's a market that we haven't touched on here on this podcast. Uh, you know, uh, Wes is from Murray, Kentucky, but went down to Tampa, Florida to, to build this company perch. So it's a unique perspective. Uh, you know, Tampa obviously shares some of the same characteristics of the areas that we cover here, just being a smaller, lesser known market for startups and innovation. So awesome episode, awesome interview with, with Wes. Before we get into that, we want to just give a quick shout out to our sponsors here. Uh, so as always, we're super grateful for, for our sponsors, Land Betterment, as the first one we're going to touch on here. So uh, as we've talked about in our past episode with them and in our previous ad reads here, uh, Land Betterment is an awesome company that uh, we actually had them on the podcast for episode 97. 
Um, and we just love what they're doing. Uh, you know, we've really enjoyed following their work and, and now working with them on this sponsorship. And what they're doing is they're taking old coal mines uh, and they're upcycling them by putting sustainable businesses on those coal mines. So they're they're also giving good jobs to the community that is oftentimes lost jobs because those coal mines are shut down. Um, and, you know, one of the topics that, uh, that we try to bring light to frequently uh, on this podcast is sustainability and green technologies. And land betterment is a perfect example of taking a new and innovative approach to solve old problems in a really sustainable and, and just cool way. Uh, you know, one of their projects, they put a bourbon distillery on, you know, an old strip mine. So obviously we love that being Kentucky boys. Uh, and it's just so easy to, to align with what they're trying to do. So if you'd like to learn more about them, you can visit their website. That's landbetterment.com. We'd also encourage you to go listen to their episode with us. That is episode 97. Yep. And lastly, we've got uh, Brandon Johnson with the Johnson Law Group. Uh, so I've said it before, you know, if you're starting a company, you need to take you know, the legal side of things seriously. That is if you're serious about your startup uh, because you know the corporation documents and the shareholder agreements and all of those operation, operational documents are very important to have correct right when you start uh, your company. And somebody like Brandon Johnson uh, is very important to have there by your side. I've personally worked with him. I'm currently working with him and uh, you know I can hit him up uh, whenever and he's very helpful. He's quick to respond and he's fun to work with. Uh, so I definitely suggest working with him. He's actually from Fordsville, Kentucky. I went to the University of Louisville uh, and has worked with companies like um, WeatherCheck, uh, Papa John's, Louisville Slugger. He's worked with Instagram influencers. So he has a wide spectrum of clients he's worked with, so he can definitely help you. Uh, and he loves helping uh, startups and small businesses and does free consults uh, pretty often. So I suggest going to middletech.com slash johnsonlaw to check out uh, his website and learn more about what he's doing uh, and listen to his episode uh, with us as well. So we're going to go and dive on in. Hope you guys enjoy it. All right, Wes, thanks for joining us, man. Hey, thank you for having me, guys. This has been, this is, I've been looking forward to this all week. Absolutely. We appreciate it. So where are you at right now? Are you down in Tampa? Yeah, so I am down in Tampa, Florida. Weather is like 70 degrees and sunny, so you need to come see me sometime soon. Uh, definitely can't complain about that. I'm actually not a Florida native. I'm a Kentucky native. Uh, I've lived in Kentucky for like 20 years, but past three, uh, the job took me down to Tampa, so I've been here for a little while now. Yeah. Uh, living in Kentucky, that makes you appreciate those mild winters in Florida a bit more. You know, we were just talking about uh, like yes. 34 today yes. in Kentucky. I would love to to be basking in some 70-degree weather down in Florida yeah. right now. So it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I'm actually looking at uh, Kentucky Lake Holmes right now. I'm definitely interested. I'm, I'm a two-state guy because we do have winters in Kentucky or in Florida. They're just, they're in the summertime. It gets so hot. I call it our winter. Like the kids don't want to go out. It's blazing hot. So, uh, but this is the time of, of year where it's really nice. Yeah. Interesting. So when I talked to you on the phone prior to you know us recording this, this podcast, uh, you were in Elizabethtown, if I remember correctly. Yep. Uh, let's yep. dive into your background uh, so that the audience can understand, you know, you said you're living in Kentucky for, you know, almost 20 years. Dive into your yeah. background on, you know, where you're from, uh, your education and your professional background up until, you know, this point, that, uh, okay. up until actually Perch. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So it's different than probably a lot of people's people ask me that question a lot. And uh, I definitely had a, a weird wonky way to get to where I'm at today. And I think that paints, uh, I'm passionate about you can get to this, you can get to whatever career path you want through whatever crazy, which way it may be. Right. And so for me, uh, I, you know, I lived in Kentucky for a really long time. My dad actually taught at Murray state. And so out of high school, you know, I'm like, what do I want to do for school? And I know, I know I want to do technology. The one thing that's been consistent in my life is I've always been like very interested in, in tech and probably cybersecurity in particular, uh, so I went to Murray State, if for no other reason other than I, it was free for me. Back then, tuition waivers were still a thing. And so I'm like, I'm going to do that. And uh, out of uh, university, I did like four years. I'm one of those weirdos. I never switched majors. I think the typical like average now is like three to four major switches, like a, like a, a year, I mean, a, a career path or whatever. But I never switched. Went right into a job right out of um, uh, college. It was extremely technical. And I was interested in that. Like I always wanted to go into uh, like management in IT, but I knew that I wanted to like get my chops first. And so I, I'm, I'm so thankful I did that. I did a very technical like network administrator job for a few years, paid really bad. 
<laughs> but it was really good for experience. And then, um, believe it or not, Murray State had an opening for me uh, about three years after or something like that. So it was like a part time network administrator it allowed me to get my master's degree as well. Um, I did that. So it was like a master's in telecommunication systems management. Go Racers. Uh, so I'm pretty passionate about uh, Murray State as well. Uh, and that was good for me. I actually ended up teaching some classes. So there was like no one else that was qualified to teach like the some of the cybersecurity classes that were offered in the TSM program. And so I was like, well, I'll do it. That sounds like fun. And I loved it. And, and it again, it paid really bad, but it taught me a whole lot. Like, I really believe like what you and I are doing right here today the birth of that for me of like communicating cybersecurity was through those classes. And it taught me to have a passion for it. Um, it just didn't pay very well. And so I knew I needed to go do something different. I was getting to this point of like burnout where, you know, I was teaching classes, doing some amount of like, you know, network administration stuff. And I was like, there's got to be something more. And so I had a friend of mine who is a CFO at a bank and he reached out to me and he's like, hey, I have a really awesome job opportunity for you. I know that you've never like been a CIO, you never worked at a bank before, but I've heard really good things about you. He's like, can we meet up over breakfast? And so we did. Long story short, uh, kind of fell in love with the job opportunity, was itching for something new. They wanted some fresh new leadership. So I came into the bank and I found myself at the bank being an educator, like literally teaching them, here's how IT is a competitive advantage for our bank. And here's a pathway that we can do to get there. And I loved my bank. It was F&B in Mayfield, Kentucky. Um, things went really, really well. Uh, really enjoyed that career pathway and learned a lot of things just on the management side of IT. And then long story short, and we can talk more about this because I think this is probably the most interesting part of the story. I got very, very involved in leadership outside of F&B while I was still at F&B. So um, was involved in some cybersecurity, like threat sharing groups that were all involved. There's some bigger organizations that are all sharing cyber threats and ended up um, partnering with a, a brand new startup called Soltra at the time. And Soltra was like this cyber threat sharing startup company. And my company, I was very interested in it. So we, we took an early kind of um, look at it and, and began to use it and got to know this, the CTO, his name is Aaron, uh, really, really well. And long story short, Aaron left Soltra. There were some things that happened there that weren't so great for him. He left Soltra and I was pretty unhappy with him leaving. He was uh, like, he, it, it was, it felt like we kind of got bait and switched a little bit. And we were at a conference in Nashville. And he's like, hey, can I have like an honest conversation with you, Wes? I'm like, yes, you can. Because what happened to this whole Soltra debacle, I'm, I'm going to call it, uh, was not good for me, for the banks. And he, he said, yeah, let's talk about it. So he pulls me aside and we have this long conversation. And he tells me, he says, um, hey, the things that happened at Soltra was not what I intended for it to happen. And I am going to go do my own thing. I have a different vision for this. It's called Perch. And he said, can I, can I at least pitch you the idea? I'm like, yeah, you can pitch me the idea. All of a sudden I went from being really angry with him to like really interested. And he showed me a PowerPoint deck. And at the time, like Perch was nothing but a deck and a vision. Like, you know, those early stage startups, that was Perch. And guys, I fell in love with it. I'm like, I love this idea. I love what you're doing. This, the industry needs what Perch is wanting to do. And I said, I want to help with this. And he's like, well, great. Help me for six months and get this company off the ground. Like be my customer voice. Help me vet this and help me really build the product for what you need. And we'll see what happens. And so I did that. And about six months later, he said, hey, I need somebody to come on board and do what I do. Are you interested in a startup? Are you interested in coming at, at, on board at Perch? I'm like, yes, I'm interested. That sounds awesome. Uh, so I took a pay cut um, and I did it for stock and I did it for hope. And you got to keep in mind, when I came on board at Perch, we had one month of funding before we went bankrupt. <laughs> so like here I am uh, at this corner office, really great bank job that's super stable that I like, that I enjoy. And he's offering me the opportunity to come to a company that within a month is going to be completely defunct unless we raise funding and, uh, you know, continue the company growth. And I took the job. I was like, this is the challenge I need in life. But like it energized me. And so uh, three years later, up here, Purchase, Purchase sold, uh, Purchase exited. And it was an awesome ride. We did really, really well. And we can talk about the journey through the middle of it. But that's kind of my, my, my journey, my story. 
Yeah, that is an awesome story. I love those stories uh, when I talk to founders and they can draw direct lines between major events in their lives, major inflection yeah. points. And you talking about being you know, involved in Murray and then becoming a professor and having to teach at the bank. And then I love that kind of direct path straight to Perch. And we're super excited to get into Perch and talk more about what it is. But we kind of wanted to set the stage for the audience on cybersecurity. So uh, give us your definition of what is cybersecurity. That, I love that you asked that question to start because I think my definition would differ from like if you just go Google cybersecurity, like the nerds that are out there like would say cybersecurity is, you know, defending an organization against cyber threats or something like that. Right. Um, I, I tend to look at it a little bit different. I look at it as sort of a, a mix of art and science together. And, and so I call it a practice. I call cybersecurity the practice of adding value to your organization through a risk-based process that does involve like defending your organization for sure. But a couple of things I want to, I want to focus on my definitions of it. Like I love this idea of a practice, like I practice law, I practice medicine. Uh, I think cybersecurity is the same way. It's a practice. It's not perfectly uh, formed. It's not like it, this, like a, like a factory process. It's like this input equals this output always. Uh, it, it's not like that. It's very often, um, you know, you talk about medicine and people come in and say, I have these symptoms. This is what I think is wrong. Well, uh, the practice of medicine is let me diagnose that problem and let me address it through prior knowledge and practice a solution that's going to work for you in terms of a, a diagnosis and a pathway forward for, you know, whatever that health plan is. Cybersecurity is actually really similar to that. In that, what we're doing with cybersecurity is we're trying to add value to our organization by diagnosing what are the problems, what are the gaps, what do we need to address, and ultimately add value back to the organization by securing them and reducing those risks and, and, and really creating competitive advantage. And like that's definitely not... Um, it's definitely not just a made up definition, right? Like the flavor of the day today, you look at, there's a company called SolarWinds. If you saw them in the news, they had a huge breach. Uh, it's a pretty big deal. And I'm, I know that's kind of beyond the topic of this podcast, but the short of it, and the reason I'm mentioning it is their stock plummeted 20% over this past week or two. I mean, think about that. A publicly traded company suffers a significant supply chain cyber breach and your stock goes down 20%. That's what cybersecurity or the lack thereof can do for your organization. Yeah. And talk a little bit about what goes into it. How do you make sure, how do you practice good cybersecurity? Uh, yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think about this a lot. Uh, and, and I think what goes into good practice is there's so many things that happen with it, right? I mean, the reality is every organization at some point in time is going to suffer a breach. Uh, I run a, like a cyber, like awareness and training weekly um, uh, webinar series. I do, we got about 2,500 people that join it every week. And one of the things I'm always telling my members is I'm like, guys, you have to get past this idea of this prevent breach mentality and move into a assume breach mentality. And what I mean by that is not defeatist, but just accept the reality that bad guys are smarter than you. There's a lot more of them out there than there are defenders. And um, at some point, you're going to suffer a breach. Now, maybe something small. It may be something like trivial. It may be something game ending. It could be a huge deal or something in between is probably the reality. But you've got to understand Get used to it. Get used to this idea of your, your organization is going to have a breach. And when it happens, are you prepared for it? And can you um, cordon and contain that breach and respond to it quickly so that damages aren't really, really bad, ending up in that 20 percent uh, you know, stock hit uh, that, that you see with with solar winds? Right. And so I think what goes into practicing is first starting there. And, and then secondly, I think what really it comes down to is making sure that it's a board level discussion and it's it's risk based versus like a whole bunch of like servers in the back room that like, you know, I've, I've got running that are going to protect me like that comes after you set the budget, you set the priorities, you understand your risk profile, you understand how you're going to address it and make sure that you have a board level decision that comes back and says, yes, we support that. And here's how we're going to budget that and defend that and make that happen. Like that's where we start the cyber conversations. 
And at a big company, it's at the board level. At a small company, let's just say you're a bourbon distiller since you guys are in Kentucky, right? Um, of course, they still, cybersecurity is a threat for them too, right? It, it In terms of their supply chain, in terms of their production, in terms of um, their retail sales operation, all that kind of stuff. And so for them, you know, it's the same kind of thing, understanding what our threat vectors are, understanding what our vulnerabilities and weaknesses are, and then how do we design adequate protection around it? describing that health plan, just like just like uh, a healthcare, right? Same kind of way. That's what the practice of cybersecurity is all about. It's never going to be perfect. It's as much an art as it is a science, uh, but that's what it comes down to. Yeah, I was going to comment on the art piece you mentioned earlier, you know, and it's an art and a practice. And you actually did bring it up, which is, you know, the hackers, you know, should always be a step ahead, right? Because they're the ones that are yeah. finding the vulnerabilities and then exposing them and taking advantage of them. Uh, so what kind of vulnerabilities are you trying to prevent? Like what, what are you, what are some of the more common ways hackers are taking advantage of companies, you know, infrastructure or getting into, you know, data yeah. they shouldn't be? What are some of the more common things you're trying to prevent? So the flavor of the day today is ransomware, right? Most of us have heard of ransomware because it's become such like a newsworthy event. In the old days, ransomware was like something like grandma would get on her computer and she pays like $500 in Bitcoin and she's back to normal. Uh, today, the new variants of ransomware are run by like criminal outfits and almost always with ransomware, it's it's financially driven. So you're seeing things like um, organized mafia, uh, mob groups, sophisticated cyber syndicates, or even like, um, believe it or not, like Chinese triad and all these Russian mafia groups now have cyber divisions. I mean, legit, that's what they're doing now. And it's purely a money grab. And so modern ransomware is the threat that's probably the most important for anybody. What we're talking about is not ransomware like on one machine. What these bad guys are doing is they're going after access ultimately to your entire organization. And you know who they're targeting? They're targeting me. They're targeting the IT guys. They're targeting the ones that have the most access and control in the organization, which typically is the IT folks. And they're going after their credentials to get access to them. And then they use their credentials to deploy ransomware across the entire organization. <laughs> it's like, it's really bad stuff. Like, so imagine what happens in a situation with like, you wake up in the morning and all of a sudden your entire infrastructure is offline. Like everything's offline. If you're the bourbon distillery, like nothing is working anymore. Like the big things are not stirring the tanks and like your production control systems are not running um, or whatever kind of organization you are. Uh, that is what we're talking about, with like a huge ransomware incident. And so what these bad guys will do is once they ransom you, they already know who you are. So they've already emailed you and they'll say, hey, we've ransomed everything. You're not getting access back unless you pay $2 million. We know the size of your organization. We know your financials. We know how much money we make. We know you can afford it because we saw all your data. And then guess what they're doing now? So we predicted at Perch that this was going to happen. We predicted this in the uh, end of 2019. We said in 2020, we're going to see a pivot from bad guys. And sure enough, this is what happened. We said, you're going to start seeing them uh, not just ransom your organization, but if you don't pay up, we're going to hold that data hostage by saying we are going to exfiltrate or leak all of your data out on just the public web so anybody can see it. And that's what bad guys are doing. So they're forcing you to pay. And if you're able to recover with really good backup systems, they say, hey, if you don't pay, I'm going to release all of your data. I'm going to release your customer information. I'm going to release your regulated health information. I'm going to release your banking information. I'm going to put it out everywhere. So it's basically extortion. So it goes from ransomware and then into ransom and extortion added on top. It's really, really bad news. And so this is to the tune of billions of dollars in damage. Uh, you look at like a normal cyber campaign, like the GAN crab threat actors that shut down in 2018, they made over $2 billion in oh ransom. Uh, unbelievable, these guys, like private island rich. Unbelievable. So yeah. that's probably the biggest threat of the day for sure. What um, You mentioned a couple of countries there. You mentioned Russia and China. Is there uh, growing you know, support from these, these countries that are not necessarily yeah. our best friends to, to hack United States businesses. And are there other regions and other countries around the world, you know, forming these, these hacker groups and doing exactly yeah. what you described earlier? What's the geographic traits look like for these, for these hackers? Yeah. So, you know, what's really interesting about all of this is when you think about cybercrime, so I have some friends in the military, right? And one of the things that they, they, they said to me a while back, and I've never forgotten this, they say, you know, when it comes to like military doctrine, you have these theaters of war, right? You have like air, land, space, now Trump Space Force, whatever it is, you know, the, the, these theaters of war. And there's another theater of war that we often talk about, and it's cyber. 
And what's interesting about cyber compared to all the other theaters of war is simply this. It's the only one that civilians like you and me get ourselves involved in, right? Like I, I never worry about like some Russian tank, like driving up to my office building and like blowing it up, right? I don't worry about that. I know that I'm protected physically, but not from a cyber perspective. And so because cyber warfare is something that everyday civilians like you and I face, we have an enemy that is way more sophisticated, way better budgeted than us and have capabilities that we will simply never have as defenders. And, and that's the case of that's just the truth of the matter. And so when you think about like like sp- like state sponsored cybercrime, that's usually going after like intellectual property theft. Like you think like election fraud kinds of things, you know, spying, counter spying that's done by like. The typicals you'd imagine, like Russia, national government, Chinese national government. But when you talk about financial crime, like ransomware, like I mentioned before, that's done by threat actors um, that are not federal government. They're operating under the guise and really tacit approval of their governments, but they're 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 crime syndicates. So things like, you know, if it's Russia, it's Russian mafia. Uh, the Eastern European bloc countries like Ukraine is a really good example of um, typical where we see a lot of threats emerge out of. Um, also, a lot of like, Asian countries, you'll see things where, like, for example, um, Vietnam is a great one. North Korea is a huge one, as you might expect. And, and the key really is where you see um, lack of extradition. That's usually the key indicator is where they know that our government does not have the ability to go after their people. And so they just turn a blind eye. Why do they turn a blind eye? They hate the U.S. And they're more than happy for U.S. businesses to be breached and have money stolen, especially because one way or another, that money comes back to their federal governments. And so honestly, that's how it happens, like the true unadulterated truth of it. And, you know, what's really interesting. Uh, We were talking about this a little bit from like how these bad guys operate. And here's how I can illustrate this. So look at this keyboard for a minute, right? Just a regular average normal keyboard, but every keyboard has a, uh, a keyboard layout. I'm using us keyboard layout. I guarantee you guys are as well. However, every operating system has a registered keyboard that has a layout with it. And if I'm in a European country and I have a Cyrillic keyboard because it's like Russian language, I happen to know that machine is Russian in nature. Now, why am I saying that? I'm saying this because of this. We were looking at some ransomware at Perch recently, and one of the operations it has that it, it does before it actually runs the ransomware is it does a machine check and says, look at the keyboard layout of this machine. If it's Cyrillic, don't run it. Why? Because it's known to be a Russian or Russian-based machine, which happens to be nearby to us. And the last thing we want to do is spit on our federal governments that are allowing this to happen. In other words, in other words, what we see is ransomware is very specific in who the targets are. And you will very rarely see Ukrainian based ransomware run against Russia or Eastern Russia or, you know, USSR era countries because it's too close to their governments. So they're only going after certain. Isn't that, isn't that really interesting? Uh, we, we saw that recently and we're just blown away by it. Yes. A question that I just have based off of that. Are you guys able at Perch to go in and look at the code that makes up these ransomwares without it infecting your organization and your systems that you're using? That's pretty, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. We do. Yeah. So we call it a sandbox. And uh, what it does, so we have a research team at Perch and like literally all my research guys do. So I'm the CISO, I'm the chief information security officer at Perch. So Almost everything cybersecurity in a cybersecurity company runs up through me, right? So in a normal company, a CISO would not be like the number two guy, so to speak, but I'm a security guy in a security company. So they do, if that makes sense. And so research team runs through me. There's some people that actually handle it much more than I do, but that's all those guys do. And they're really, really good at it. And so we have something called a sandbox. Uh, that sandbox is a series of like virtual machines we have running in Amazon and we, we can feed it suspected malware and it will run it and trick. So, so a lot of modern ransomware variants have sandbox detection, uh, but we do a bunch of things that make it look legitimate. We fool the ransomware and it'll run. And then the entire time long, uh, think of it as like eyes in the sky, so to speak, that are watching what that ransomware does in the sandbox and it outputs back to us an entire list of report of here's what it did. Here's how it operated. Here's what it ran, all that kind of stuff. And if anyone's listening to this and you're technical and you want to know what a sandbox is to play with, there's one called Cuckoo, uh, Cuckoo sandbox. It's a free open source sandbox you can play around with and learn, but that's how we do it. That's exactly how we unpack and look at what the bad guys are doing, discover how it operates so that we can build defenses based upon what it's doing. It's still a cat and mouse game, but it's a great way to kind of stay on the edge of what uh, cybercrime is doing. Yeah. 
And so speaking of like staying on the edge, how, how penetrated is cybersecurity into the general economy? Are, are just the top organizations in the government really paying attention to this? Or are so, the smaller businesses able to stay on that edge and, and stay up to date? What's that, what's that look like? That's a great question. Um, that's a really good question. So, so a couple of things. Uh, you look at like cybercrime losses this year alone, I think projections are about $6 trillion worldwide. Holy cow. So that, that's a staggering number. And that, that's definitely not a number that's like we think it could be. We're, we're calculating it ba- based on the year before, the year after that, or the year prior to that. So $6 trillion is what we're going to lose this year. We just chalked it up. Uh, when you think about that, there's only so many Fortune 500s lying around that are going to have significant damages. So believe it or not, where's the, the majority of those damages coming from? It's coming from ransomware for sure. And it's hitting small and mid-sized businesses. That's the truth of it. I have a lot of friends, especially I had some conversations very recently with some friends at NIST, um, National Institute of Science and, and um, Standards, the people that like make our standards like those guys. They are very they have a cyber division. And they are very well attuned to this problem of we are seeing these small and mid-sized companies get hit left and right because they're unprepared. They don't have the resources. They don't have the knowledge. And they're just sitting ducks. They're prey. Um, and it used to be that we always knew that that was a threat vector, but people used to say, I'm too small for anyone to care about me. They would say, like, I'm never going to be a target because they're always going to go after the Fortune 500s. The truth is cyber attacks are like water. If I design like some kind of, you know, like the kids the other day, we were out hiking and we saw a stream and they got rocks and they're putting the rocks around trying to make a dam. And they noticed they're like, dad, the water kind of goes wherever it wants, does it? It's fluid. I'm like, yes. And I thought like this thought like that's cyber crime as well. It's going to go wherever it's most able to go. And so right now it's going down market. Why? For two reasons. One, down market is way easier. They don't have the resources and sophistication that the bigger orgs do. And number two is what's happened in ransomware is specifically with these threat actor groups is they are now banding together in these what we call syndicates. So you actually have people now that write the ransomware. You have people that deploy the ransomware and you have t- people that actually get the financial payments from the ransomware and send it back to the people that write the ransomware. It's like an actual an affiliate circle. It's unbelievable how this stuff works. And so like these guys actually have help desks. So if you hit, get hit with ransomware, uh, you, you can actually talk to an actual criminal via email. And now some of these guys, even over phone calls, I kid you not, over like a Skype call and talk with them and they will help you not only make the payment, but they will help you with the recovery of the ransomware. It's unbelievable. They treat it like a business. I mean, it's, it's mind boggling to me, but the scale of it has blown up going after mid-sized businesses because they're such ripe targets. And now because they're operating these syndicates, the scale of it's gone so much higher. So they can afford to go after, you know, 50, 100 different companies at once because they're giving it to their affiliates and they're saying, affiliates, go do the dirty work. Instead of just putting all their eggs into like the JP Morgan chase basket, they're going after tons and tons of small and mid-sized banks as an example. Hmm. Uh, And before we get, I want to ask about, you know, consumers and how we should be thinking of security. But before... I do that. You know, what are some of the ma- who are some of the major players in security that are helping protect not only the large businesses, midsize and small. You know, who are those companies? And you know, I share a, a passion and interest in enterprise SaaS and SaaS in general as well. And one that I've been following that's absolutely blown up is CrowdStrike. Uh, so, is that one of the major players? Talk about some of the you know the ecosystem around cybersecurity. CrowdStrike for sure is probably number like I would say if you're a stock investor and you're looking for like three classic publicly traded security companies that you shouldn't lose out on, it would be CrowdStrike, it would be Zscaler and it would be uh, Cisco, probably the top three. Now, there's many, many that are out there, uh, but those would be like the three big boys. And CrowdStrike's awesome, right? Their claim to fame. And I know CrowdStrike really well. I talk to them at least once a week. We're very tightly partnered with them at Perch. Um, so their claim to fame is really the whole Russian hacking stuff that came out. They're the ones that that exposed the entire thing and the the actual Russia threat group they called um, Fancy Bear, I think is the name that, that they gave those bad guys. I forget. Uh, but they're the ones that uncovered it and that put them into the stratosphere and they IPO'd it. Was it $2 billion they IPO'd at? I forget what, it, what their IPO was. Um, and they just grown from there, right? Just fantastic company. Just awesome, right? They're the darling. We call them the um, the unicorn in cybersecurity. Uh, but then you have those big classic players out there as well, like Cisco and the others. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. Um, 
So when Perch was raising for our B round, we went to all the top shelf investors, I mean, like Excel, uh, Sequoia, like you name them, all the Sand Hill Road investors in Silicon Valley. Like we went, talked to them all. And the thing that we we learned, and I'm just going to throw this out there because I, I, it's, it's, uh, I hope someone listens to this and they get value out of this, is they've all learned the enterprise market for cybersecurity, while still huge, like I'm looking at spending, spending for tw- by 2024, cybersecurity spending is is calculated to be about $174 billion in the U.S. Now, that's a huge number. It's still way less than $6 trillion in worldwide damages, by the way. <laughs> but it's huge. But what they've realized is it's getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And there's harder and harder ways to find um, true go-to-market success. In enterprise-only cybersecurity, and there's a big green space. What's that green space? Green space is small and mid-sized business. Well, how do you get to small and mid-sized business, especially when they don't have like IT people on staff that like secure their organizations? Well, you go through what's called the channel, like managed IT providers, managed security providers, managed um, uh, like VARs, value-added resellers, these groups that come in and help you deploy a, a system. And then usually they, they help you manage it as well. And all of the big top shelf VCs have seen this. And they're like, this is the future of cybersecurity mid-market. If we want to continue to grow and make sure our investments are working, we are looking for solutions that are very, very, very um friendly to the SMB market, especially going through the channel. And by the way, that's what Perch did. Where we were so successful is we we had some enterprise deals. I think we had like five Fortune 500s that were clients of ours. But the bread and butter of Perch for us came through those managed IT providers who could then deploy the Perch solution to thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and they would manage it for us. And that's the future, right? That's the way you get to cybersecurity success when you're trying to go after the mid-market and small markets. It's the only way you'll be able to do it successfully. And before I do want to dive into Perch, because I'm really interested to hear about that whole journey for y'all. Yeah. Uh, before I do that, the last question I have related to security in general is, you know, as consumers, how should we be thinking of it? Is it enough for me to buy Apple products because I know they take privacy and security very seriously? Or are there other things I should be thinking about as a normal consumer? So um, good question. And, you know, you look at what's been happening in the news cycles lately with like the whole uh, Facebook privacy policy changes and everyone moving over to like Signal and um, Telegram. In fact, my next YouTube video I'm going to do is on that specific, like what's caused the move. Uh, Telegram is now like 500 million users. You're seeing people in droves move towards that. There's a, But my point is there's a difference between privacy and security. Those are two different things. And I can have privacy and not security. I can have security and not privacy. And sometimes I can have both together. And you, as a consumer, you have to understand the difference between the two, right? And here's the difference. With privacy, if you're not paying for a product, you are the product. I'll give a great example of Gmail. I use Gmail. I like Gmail. I'm a fan of Gmail, but I don't pay for Gmail. Well, guess why I'm not paying for Gmail? Because I know Google is mining that data. I don't have the privacy that I would if I'm using like Photon Mail, which is a way better, more security focused email provider, right? I'm paying for the features and the capabilities that Google gives me. Same with Facebook. No one pays for Facebook because you are the product and they're marketing to you. They're mining your data. So you need to be cognizant of that and make the decisions of like, where am I comfortable with all that and the data that they're taking from me? Because that's valuable to me and valuable from me. But security itself is this this idea of it's not so much focused on privacy. It's focused on how do I keep myself secure? Well, what am I keeping myself secure from? So things like my account credentials, my credit card and banking information. Those are things that I should concern myself about. And I'll tell you, this is so easy. There are two things that you need to do that will help you on the consumer security side more than anything else. The first is use a password manager. A good example of one uh, is LastPass. Uh, LastPass is a great password manager. Passwords are such a broken ecosystem. Nobody remembers good passwords, right? Especially when you have like, you know, three, four, 500 accounts you have to log into. It's, use a password manager. Uh, much, much better way to go because the password manager will create a great long password. Now, the thing that always comes up when I say this is people are like, well, then doesn't that put all your eggs in one basket? And I'm like, yes, but I'd rather have one strong basket rather than me having to like remember a bajillion passwords. Let's be honest. We all use the same password for everything if we don't use a password manager. So it's way weaker. What's the risk trade-off? Use a password manager. The second thing that's most important is use two-factor authentication. So two-factor is like when I log into something, it sends a code. The old school way of two-factor is like a text message, which is okay, but easily broken by bad guys. A better one is an app. 
uh, like Google Authenticator. And you know what I'm going to do for you guys? Like, I'm actually going to show this to you. I, I straight up do this on calls all the time because the cool thing about this is this is uh, ephemeral. By the time someone watches this, it is no longer good. So this is my actual Google Apps. You can see all of my two-factor authentications. And you can see, look, it's about to change. Watch, let's do it together. And now it's changed. Whoever watched that and tried to screen grab that, it's worthless to them because it changes every so often. So if someone steals my password and I have two-factor set up, the only way they get access is that they put in that second factor at the exact same time, that narrow window, before it recycles. If you do those two things, password manager and two-factor on everything religiously, you will find your life will be far, far, far better off. Um, and you will not struggle with security like, like, uh, uh, like you would otherwise. Cool. All right. Uh, let's dive into Perch. Uh, this is a crazy story. Um, when we talked on the phone, it was, uh, sounded very exciting, you know? So I want to, I want to hear, let's just start with what is Perch? Uh, you mentioned, you gave us some, some insight earlier, but talk about the product and what you guys were actually you know building. So I'm going to explain to you the way I explain it to everybody, because I think this will make sense. I'm a huge believer in distilling cybersecurity. I hate buzzwords. I hate talking like in abstract that like you hear someone use big words. And you're like, what does that even mean? So I'm not going to do that. Watch, watch this. Watch. I'm going to give you guys a pitch. I want to tell you if you think this would resonate with you. Okay. So Perch is a co-managed threat detection response platform. And what we mean by that is it's a platform that's looking for and monitoring for threats like 24-7. And we staff a team of analysts that are watching for those threats day and night, even like 2 a.m. on Christmas morning. And here's kind of the way, here's an analogy to kind of make it all make sense is like, think about your home for a minute. We, we all have locks on our doors, right? Like we all do that. We, we know that we put locks on the door, you know, for vacations, bed at night, in the days we go into work. But think about it for a minute. Like, do I really expect the fact that I have door locks on my door that a bad guy is going to walk up? And he's going to jiggle the door handle and be like, oh, they locked the door again. Man, Evan outsmarted me again. Shucks. No, we know they're going to kick the door down. They're going to like throw a brick through the window. They're going to like Santa style through the chimney, right? They're going to find a way to get in. We know that no one gets mad at their door locks when they fail because, you know, at some point, a bad guy is going to get past it. So what do we do as a defensive mechanism? We put in a home alarm system and the alarm system is not meant to stop the bad guy. It's meant to tell us when the bad guy gets in. It, it operates, in other words, under the assumption that a bad guy is going to get into the network or into the home. Right. So things like security cameras and motion sensors, all that kind of stuff. And that's the idea of what Perch is doing for your network. We operate under the assumption that your firewall, your antivirus, all that stuff, at some point is going to fail. And so we're watching for those failures. We're watching for signs of activity like the cyber, you know, moving, someone moving in the hallway, so to speak. And when we see that, we take action. We warn the customer. We say, this is what we're seeing. We can deploy some preventative defenses, but we are all about saying we're going to, we expect you're going to get breached. And when it happens, we want to detect it and take action so we can limit that breach and, and ultimately make it not so bad. Does that make sense? That, that's what Perch does. Yeah, no, it does. Um, and once once you, you, you notice that breach, what's typically the next step for the business? How do you help them with that? So it depends on who the customer is, right? So like if, if we're if we're talking about like a like a Fortune 500, they have a 24/7 team of people that we go right to and they immediately take action. We say this is the known compromised host, this is what we think you should do. They'll say, "Cool, we got it from there. See you later." Uh, smaller business is not that way. Remember we had talked about managed IT providers being the key to unlocking success in cybersecurity for small and mid-sized business because they don't have their own IT staff. That that's why they're so important. We we view them as we call them our partners because we mean it. And one of the things they do as a partner, a value they provide that we can never provide is boots on the ground. So when we have some kind of breach or suspected breach for, you know, let's say a small chiropractor's office, we tell the MSP that manages them, hey, this is the threat and this is what you should do about it. And the MSPs are the ones that have the capabilities of taking action on that right away. The bigger ones will have a 24-7 help desk, just like the big companies we work with. The smaller ones, we still have a call line, an on-call number, whatever it is we can get in touch with. And so that's how those things work, is we're able to work through our partners who then take action for the small and mid-size. And that's the only way you're successful. Like if Perch tried to go to business and go to market, which by the way, in the early days we did, we pivoted away from this, before we knew the value of MSPs, we were not doing well mid-size because we go escalate a threat and they'd be like, so... 
what am I supposed to do about it? <laughs> like, take action now. Well, how do I take action? Do you not have like somebody that does this? And like, well, my IT provider, I guess I could call them. I'm like, yes, put us on the phone with them. Uh, and so we get on the phone with the IT provider and be like, yo, can I just sell this and manage it for you guys? And we're like, uh, yes, I think that sounds great. Uh, and that's how the whole relationship really began. Uh, some other ways too, but but that's the that's the idea of how it would happen. And this is just a, a curiosity question. I'm sure some people in the audience are probably curious about this too. How long does the typical hack really last? So you've detected somebody is in the hallway of your your organization. How long do you have before you know they're done with the hack? I feel like I'm pretty uh, you know naive to the way all of this works. But what does that actually look like as they're going in and, and hacking you? You guys ask the best questions. Like that, that's a really, really good question. I mean that. So uh, here's the answer to that. It depends on the sophistication of the hack and the damages that are caused are often, not always, but oftentimes representative of the time it took. So there is um, a company. So Verizon, everyone knows Verizon. They have a data breach response team. Actually, they have a really great cyber team and they do a study every single year and they, they answer that question you just asked. They call it the cyber detection breach gap. And what they're looking for is how long does it take a bad guy to get in, do their damages, and ultimately, whatever it is they're trying to do before the, the good guys detect and respond to that. And what they found is day it usually takes days or less for a bad guy to do the smash and grab. And it takes weeks, if not months, before the good guys even detect something. Like it's a huge gap by by weeks, if not months. So so there's a huge lag time that exists in it. But here's the advantage for defenders is like oftentimes you hear people say in security, they'll say things like, you know, we have to be right every single time. A bad guy's only got to be right once to get into our network. Well, that's true. But the second they get into your network, that whole paradigm flips. And now I have to, or now the bad guy has to be right every single time. They have to stay hidden. They have to be quick. They have to know what they're going for, but they're operating in the blind. They just got into your network. They don't know your network. They have to look around and find where the credentials and how do I get from this to that? And how do I deploy this? Those are all pieces of signs of attack that as good guys, we just have to catch one of them to say something is not right, throw the red alarms and take action now. Does that make sense? And so... If we invest in detection-based technologies, like what Perch is doing, we have the capability of saying, I'm not trying to stop the breach. We know you're going to get breached. We're trying to say, do we see signs of it so that we can shorten that detection gap and take action before the ultimate damages are done? And guys, we do that all the time. Like there's not, there's a, there's a, um, a threat. There's a software system that bad guys use just as an example called Emotet. Nothing makes Perch happier than when we see Emotet active in a network and we escalate it to the customer and they kill that threat out and we never see ransomware. A hundred percent of the time, had they not taken that action, they would have had ransomware on their machine. Like that is, it makes you feel good. You know, you did real good in 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 a situation like that, right? That does not happen every day, but it does happen often. So that's kind of the answer to that is, is it usually doesn't take long and you do have the capability of responding if you have good detection capabilities to see and respond quickly. Yeah, no, that's a great explanation. I really appreciate the kind of analogy you made there of having to like a burglar coming into your house and having to understand where things are. That makes, that just makes a lot of sense to someone like me who's not super technical. So I'm sure that's the same with the audience as well. Um, talk a little bit about why Perch was created in the first place. You mentioned the founder left the company he was at to go and do his own thing. So what was the, the reason Perch was created? You know, I, I feel like every great startup story has a pivot inside of it. And, and you guys know what the pivot is. Like a pivot right. is when we're doing this and here's our go to market. For some reason, it's not working that well. It could be better. And we make a change. Right. And the idea of a pivot, like you guys are from Kentucky, you're basketball people. I can't pivot with both feet off the ground. There's to have one foot planted to pivot. That's the only way it works. And so here's what happened with Perch is we were bankers and we saw that the small banks did not have the capabilities that the big banks had. And I came from a small bank. Aaron came from JP Morgan. He had an army of people. We would joke around at conferences. So I knew Aaron for a while before he started Perch. And he, we would joke around this idea. We would say like, leave no vendor left behind, leave no budget uncovered. We would like joke about that because the big banks just blow money on everything. Small banks are like, yo, can I get a piece of that? Like, hello, I can barely afford any virus. And we're like, that's not right. Like that's super messed up. And so that's why we created Perch. And it went pretty good. I mean, we were... 
by the time we made a pivot and knew that we needed to make a pivot, we were we had maybe 30, 40 banks and maybe 10 healthcare providers, something like that. And it was working, but the sales cycle was really long and it was slow and it was arduous. And that is when um, we met with our future to be a round providers, a company called ConnectWise. And ConnectWise was like, guys, you're missing the key element. Quit going after these small and mid-sized banks when all of them and all the healthcare providers and everybody that needs perch they have some amount of a managed IT presence. Why are you not including them? And we're like, well, because we don't know how. And they were like, well, how about we invest in you guys? We would love to lead your A round. And they, they actually invested in us for $9 million, uh, for our A. And they said, we're going we're to help you with a go-to-market. And that's what they did. And that was the pivot for us. We didn't stop serving small and mid-sized banks. We started going through the managed IT partners and attracting them through a go-to-market that's friendly to them. And it changed the scope of Perch forever. Just to give you numbers, because I don't care. I'm straight up giving you numbers. Back then, like our first year, we were making like, I think, 600K in revenue, something like that. Second year before we made our pivot, um, just shy of a million. We made that pivot the next year with basically no like prep time. We just went right into it and we closed it like four and a half million. So like that, like, it worked for us. It really, really worked. And the only way a pivot works is when you're truly paying attention to your, like you can't pivot correctly unless you know your market. And so really, really, truly understanding your customers and the challenges of why your delivery model is not working, that is the key to making a successful pivot. So we kept our foot plan on the ground, kept the product the same, but changed the go-to-market and who we were messaging to and who we're ultimately serving. And the goal was the customer of our customer. We still wanted the banks. We still wanted the small companies, but we realized the customer of our customer, that's them. They're not our customer. Their customer is the MSP. So let's go to them and let's build an attractive model for them so they can go and, and bring Perch to the masses. And that was the success for Perch. Hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, you guys, it sounds like you had some very rapid growth. Uh, you guys were acquired pretty quickly too. Uh, and I wanted to ask, you know, what, what, in, what went into that acquisition? Why did it happen so quickly? What were you guys doing right that made you guys such an attractive target? Good, really good question. So if you look at just like the macro view for a minute, again, I wrote some notes down because I, I'm always interested in this. So there's about 21,700 cybersecurity startups right now, like in, just out there. If you look on Crunchbase, uh, 1,650 of them got funding this year alone. And most of that's like Series A funding. So there's a lot of activity in there. Um, I think we're seeing the projections for this year, $10 billion in cybersecurity funding will be dispersed through VCs and private equity firms. So there's a lot of money going around. There's a lot of activity going on. It's a hot, hot market. Uh, on average, the revenue multiples for an acquired cybersecurity company are somewhere on like the super low end, maybe 5X, the high, the super high end 20X and meet in the middle at 10 million. Like that's the revenue multiple. So if like I'm a, just on average, so if I'm a you know $1 million revenue company, just multiply that by 10, that gives you an idea of what a company could be worth at the exit. So there, there's, and this has to be like a true software company, not a service company. So there's a lot of money in it. There's a lot of um, activity in it. There's a lot of funding that's in all of it. And so for us, you know, we didn't plan on selling that quickly. We assumed that when we did the A round with ConnectWise as deeply involved as they were with us, that they would eventually be our acquirers. But we we really wanted to, ultimately, honestly, we wanted to take the company further and longer than we did. Um, but what came what it came down to is there's a whole bunch of things that fell into place at the right time. And one of them was, you know, like, what's the movie? Like, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. You know, like that some of that goes into those kinds of things, right? And ConnectWise realized, speaking for them, uh, that they that Perch was critical to their security service delivery model, like critical to them. And so better off buying Perch now at an offer they can't refuse than wait for Perch to grow another year or two years. And the number that we'd have to buy goes up and up and up and doubles almost every other year as long as we're doing well, right? And so you didn't hear this from me, I suppose. Like this is public data that if you go search like Perch acquisition, you'll see it for $80 million. I'm not allowed to talk about the specifics. Um, it's in my NDA, uh, but you will see public data that's a number that you will see and we can just work off that number. Um, and so ultimately, that's what a lot of it came down to is we were so critical to their strategy. They wanted to make an offer we couldn't refuse. 
Um, and the market was just right for us. Like we were a little con- we were a little concerned about what might happen with the election cycles. And, you know, all, we just felt like this is the time to sell this company. We've got a great offer and, and, and now's the time. And, and ConnectWise is a fantastic um, the right company to acquire Perch because they helped us build the market and they know how to continue to utilize Perch. And so we felt like it wasn't just an acquisition, but it was coming on board with them to continue to rocket ship Perch even further. Now, I will not be, and I'll just say this, I will not be at ConnectWise forever, but I'm very invested in helping them maximize Perch and continue to grow and integrate into the ecosystem um, because it does great good for all of our partners. And that's what it's all about. So that's kind of how the whole thing happened. That's awesome. And talk a little bit about some of your biggest takeaways, you know, growing Perch and then it getting acquired because it's been a, a pretty short amount of time, pretty short time yeah. span. So yeah. I'm sure these are all kind of front of mind to you. What are some of your biggest takeaways from this whole experience? Uh, so um, a startup, I'm just going to say a startup is like juice in the veins. Like it, it really is. Like I was telling somebody at uh, a colleague of mine, I said, you know, it, it's like now that the acquisitions happened, um, it's not that we're still not moving at a fast pace. We are, but we have so much more resources we've never had before. Like startups scrap. And I always call Perch a blue collar startup. Like we always had a chip on our shoulder. Like we're not the UK. We're like the Murray State to use basketball analogies. You know what I mean? Like we were not a blue chip startup. We had no street cred to our background. I mean, yes, Aaron was a CTO at Soltra, but ultimately I would say Soltra was a failure. Um, so no one, like we got funding. But it, we didn't get funding because, like, we came out of, like, Google. Like, we got funding because we had an idea, but we always got way less than what we asked for. Like, I always remember Aaron would say when he first ra- raised uh, money for our seed, you know, he was wanting a million. He got, like, 250K. Why? Because he had gotten laughed out of the room by, like, 50 other investors. Like, literally. Like, it, like no one wanted to give him money because who is this guy? And so we were always dealing with underfunding and never having the resources that we needed And I'm telling you, like, that charges you up. That is so exciting to say, you know what? I don't care. We're still going to do this thing because it comes down to vision and execution. It does not come down to pedigree. I can't tell you how many companies I've seen with pedigree that still fail. And so I think that is so important for us. We scrapped and we earned our exit and we earned the allegedly $80 million that came with it. Like, I can't tell you how exciting something like that is to truly build something from scratch and add value at the same time, like make a difference in this world. Like you don't get anything else better than that. Like you just don't. And so that is the big thing I've learned is like, Hey, it's man, if you want to check in and out of a job and you want the safe, secure job in the corner office of the bank, that cool. That's for you. Like I applaud that go for it. But like me, I'm like, you know, I've, I've only got a few more years to live on this earth. Call it 60 more years. If I'm lucky, like super lucky, let's just call it an even 40 more years left on this earth. That's not a lot of time. I want to go do something in my life that makes a difference. I want to end my life being like, man, I did something. I put a legacy for my kids. Um, I, I went on some adventures. I did some hard things. And I succeeded in life. And like startups for me, like that's what it's all about is the adventure and challenge. That's what puts the juice in my veins and the against all odds mentality. It's exciting and it's rewarding when it succeeds. It doesn't always succeed, but vision and execution are the most important things to get you there. And that's all we focused on that in our customers, like like really, really highly attuned customer service and knowing our market. And that's what led to the success. And so th- those are the things I learned. Like, I, I can't wait to go do it again. Uh, entrepreneurialism it will always be in my genes. You'll probably never see me go to like a Fortune 500 unless it's the tail end of my career because they're not fun. They're not ri- they, everything a Fortune 500 does. And I got me on a tan or on, on a on a uh, rabbit trail or whatever. But everything a, a Fortune 500 does, does it with a parachute attached. You know what I mean? Like this idea of like, well, we're going to try this, but if it doesn't work, here's our exit plan. Startups don't get exit plans. Like startups are like, this is the only way to do it. If this doesn't work, then I fail. It's an all in mentality. It's a burn the ships mentality. It's the only way this stuff works. And so that's my point is like, that is so exciting to me to see it succeed. And it succeeds if no other reason other than I have to make it work. I have no other option. I have no exit plan. I have no parachute. Like that's it. That's the only thing I got. Yeah, I know that resonates with both Evan and I being at startups currently, and Evan's got a, a lot of experience working at startups. We could get fired up and go on and on about all the different benefits and, and joys of working at a startup and, and costs as well. You know, there's a lot that, that goes into trying to get a company off the ground. And one of the things that really resonated with me, you know, your takeaway of execution, I think that's something that a lot of people need to take 
and understand how important that is, you know, in the age of these companies having mass evaluations pre-product. You know, I think ed- execution is something that I hope is not becoming undervalued, but it seems like it might be here in, in 2021. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for those takeaways. Those are both very insightful, yeah, I think. Especially, you know, I think you hit a nail on the head, which is, you know, you guys didn't have this pedigree. I think that's really important for our audience. You know, our audience, and one thing we're trying to tackle as, you know, a company with middle tech is, you know, trying to distill that in this community. Like, we don't need to have this kind of ex- the kind of experience that you have on the coast. We have our own experiences. We have our own way of building companies. And then it comes down to execution. Uh, I, I'd really like that you mentioned that. Uh, and I think it's really important. And again, that's going to resonate with their audience. So I just mentioned, uh, you know, the coast. And you're down in Tampa. Uh, you've spent a lot of time in Kentucky. But let's talk about Tampa for a bit. Uh, talk about the scene in Tampa. What does it look like? Because I've never seen the, the scene in Tampa. I'm sure most of our audience hasn't. What, what does Tampa look like from a startup scene? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Um not known, we're known for being a retirement community, right? We're not known for uh, startup talent. And uh, Perch always flew under the radar. And when we sold, again, allegedly for 80 million or whatever, um, in that hit the newswire, uh, we had a whole bunch of like press reach out to us and be like, hey, who the heck is Perch? And how did, what? Like, you were here? Like, what? And, uh, you know, they asked us, they said, it just seems like Tampa is, it just doesn't have the, the, um, the, the talent pool, does it? And we said, well, let me ask you a question. Is it that we don't have the talent pool or we don't have the entrepreneurs coming in driving vision? And they're like, well, you've never thought of it that way. And, and we're like, look, the argument is always Silicon Valley is the best place to do it because that's where the talent is. Well, that's true. But the talent will go wherever the talent can make something of themselves. So right now it's Silicon Valley. Well, in this age of work from home, COVID, flexibility of work, all that, we do have a lot of our development team in Tampa. Uh, but my point is, it takes three or four successful exits for a company, like for multiple companies in an area to get known for something. And people will come to that draw. Like no one, I'll just be honest, no one likes living in Silicon Valley. Like, yes, it's the the heart of technology, but it's ridiculously expensive, like ridiculously expensive. And, and our investors would even say that. They'd be like, you know, we love that you guys aren't in San Francisco because your cost to run, your burn is so much more contained for all that. We're like, yep. And, and they're like, as long as you can find the talent, we love it. We support it. It's awesome. So it can be done anywhere. Uh, but it does come down to um, being flexible and finding great talent, being open to remote work for those people that aren't always going to be in and creating a fostering uh, culture that encourages your remote workers to feel like they're part of the family. And there's lots beyond the the this this topic today, of course, but it can be done. It should be done. And it can, if it can be done in Tampa, it can be done in Kentucky. It can be done in, you know, Montana, wherever it may be. It can absolutely be done. And you'll see investors get behind it. Again, vision and execution. Hmm. And, and what brought you to Tampa to begin with? What what, what took you down there? <laughs> so since Aaron lives in Tampa and yeah. Perch was headquartered in Tampa, and I would say 60% of our employees were in Tampa. I mean, keep in mind, I was like employee like five or six, something like that. Um, but when I took the job, you know, he's like, hey, look, you're going to be running the company like I'm running the company. You're doing what I'm doing. So he said, eventually, I need you in Tampa. Right. It's just hard for you to do that remote. Most other people t- totally find to be remote. We never made anybody. I'm the only one at Perch who was ever asked to reload. Uh, so that was the main reason why I did the reload is, is because I needed to be local to where our team is. Um, that was critical. Yeah. And in the world of, you know, remote work, you had mentioned it there and it sounded like you wanted to go a little bit further into that. What should communities, and I'm really interested in hearing your perspective on this, what should communities be doing to foster a more remote work culture or attract more remote workers? And is Tampa starting to make some of those uh, moves? And so if they're not, treat this as advice you might give to somebody that's making decisions in Tampa and the government, how, how to foster that. Yeah, you know, it's it's um, I'm glad you asked the question. Tampa, Tampa now has an accelerator. Um, It's called Tampa Bay Wave. They may have been around for a little while now, but they actually just announced a big new funding. Um, uh, A couple big startups in the and successful companies in Tampa have all like gotten together to fund it. And uh, when you look at it, what's kind of cool about it's not there's there's more cybersecurity companies in Tampa now than just Perch. Um, No before, which is like a two billion dollar roughly cybersecurity fishing company is in Clearwater, just right across the bay. So it was neat when we saw the Tampa Bay Wave form up and the sponsorships behind it. um, They they put a bunch of funding into the accelerator uh, so they could actually fund companies. And when you look at the companies that were involved, it's not just the startup companies. Um, it was like Raymond James is, is here in Tampa. So Raymond James put in a bunch of money. And I guess my point is like, 
this we all we're all in this together. And so if I'm in Lexington, for example, the first thing I would do is say, hey, look, we we should foster a vibrant uh, community that encourages startups. And let's say I know Valvoline and Ashland are over there, right? If, if, I, if memory serves me, I'd go to Al, I'd go to Ashland and Valvoline and be like, hey, you guys need to do this. And they say, well, why? We're not a startup. And I'll say this because it creates talent and it creates a talent pool of people. And some of them are going to come work for you. You might even buy some of these startups, even though like would Valvoline want to get in a cybersecurity company? Maybe, maybe not. Do they care about cybersecurity? Definitely. They care about cybersecurity, right? Or whatever the other startup scenes are, but let's encourage and foster a, uh, a pool of people to be very interested in this. Accelerators go a long way using funding, to create open workspaces and incubators and all these kinds of things to say, we are truly friendly to this. We want to support it with funding. We want to st- support it with infrastructure. We're going to find local investors that really understand the market and can serve as seed investors. This is a topic for another webinar. You guys need to bring me back on one day, but even like finding funding. Uh, we found funding by local Tampa investors who then introduced us to a billionaire who led um, part of our A round, who then led us to ConnectWise. We never would have had FaceTime with the billionaire guy who owns his private jet unless our seed investors who'd already sold the company to him before got us there. Well, they were local and that's how it happened. And so I think those are the things we can do. And so imagine if, you know, uh, let's say you guys do that in your community and you build all that. You've got local big company sponsors and you build this community around it. You have people flocking in that want to come and successful companies coming in and, and truly exiting what does that do for the local community? It just blows it up. It just absolutely blows it up. So yeah, that's how I think it should be done. And I think that's how Tampa Bay Wave is doing it. I think that's how all communities need to do it according to what size and scale they have. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And, you know, as we're sitting here and and talking about this, we always like to kind of end things on a forward looking statement. Uh, And, you know, you've had a really big uh, life event here. So congratulations on the on the acquisition. I know that's super exciting. So kind of leave us on a a forward looking statement of what's next for you in your life. Where are you you headed next? Um, Yeah, it's uh, so this has taught me to be brave, to be bold, like I mentioned before, my little uh, uh, diatribe I had. Uh, But uh, I would say for me, um, looking forward is I want to do this all over again. Um, I, I saw the good in all of it. I saw it wasn't just making a lot of money from stock. I mean, that's that's the that's the icing on the cake. The cake is creating great jobs for people like doing real good in this world and truly causing this world to be better than it was before we left before we started it. Right. That That's important. We left it in a better spot. I mean, objectively, we did. And that's what's encouraging, creating something from nothing like that's really, 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 really fun and rewarding. And so I guess that's my thing. Like, I want to encourage everyone. You can go do it, too. Uh, Nothing is stopping you other than you having the desire to to go do it and make it happen. And maybe proof in the pudding. I'm going to go do that again one day. Like when the time is right, I am absolutely going to go create my own company again and do this thing all over again. And if it fails, guess what? I'm going to do it again until it succeeds. Like, I'm very passionate about it. And um, the people that you can trust the most are those who have been down that path and have said I would go do it again. It wasn't always easy, uh, but it's much more rewarding and I would always do it again. So maybe that's my thoughts and statement for you. That was, that was perfect. Wes, thank you so much for, for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. And I know you mentioned there that, or at one point on the episode that you have YouTube channels. If the audience wants to listen to more of what you have to say and, and your thought leadership in cybersecurity, where can they find you? Yeah. So two places to come find me that I'm very active is LinkedIn, just Wes Spencer. And I promise I will accept your invite. I'm super open about that. Uh, and then also I run a YouTube channel. If you just search Wes Spencer, I'll come right up. I think I'm, actually as of today, I hit 18,000 subs. Uh, so that's pretty, I mean, I guess in the scheme of things, it's still small, but it's it's huge for me. Uh, and I cover cybersecurity, I cover cryptocurrency because I'm a big crypto nerd. And I cover like startups, all that kind of stuff as well. So yeah, find me there, sub to me there. And I appreciate it. Let me do a shout out for that.